Two months ago, a black man died under the knee of a white police officer. It was videoed. You all know about it. Most of you have seen it. The world was horrified by what we saw. It was the universal response, a dismay that something like that happened. Something like that could happen. The reactions in the last two months have been lots of different things. People have given speeches. People have gotten together in prayer groups. People have protested. Demands have been made for justice. Demands have been made for equality. And that's taken many different forms. We've watched statues being torn down, names taken off of buildings, people being fired or canceled because of something they said 30 years ago, calls to get rid of the police. Blame America, blame the system, ban toys, ban old movies, ban pancakes and rice. I know some bad people are doing bad things. That's another story. But, but all of that tells us that good people want something to be done. And good people are confused. We don't know what to do. We see that video, we see lots of other evidence, and we say, there's something wrong. Can't get around that. And most of you, I know, want to fix something. What can I do? At the very least, how can I not be a part of the problem? But you don't know what to do. So I want to talk about that topic today. What do the people of God do in the situation we find ourselves in in this country right now. I first thought I'd call this series, and we're going to do this week and next week, part one and two, I thought about calling it Talking About Race. And then I realized the Bible doesn't really mention race. It doesn't say anything about it. So then I thought, well, I'll call it Thoughts About Racism. The Bible does mention racism. But what I ended up calling it was questions about racism. And and I hope that conveys a couple of things. I hope, first of all, you note that I didn't say answers about racism. Well, I don't have the answers. I don't have, not only don't I have all of them, I don't even have some of them. But I do have questions, and I think we all have questions. So I've picked out three questions I want to talk about today. I hope it's helpful. Now, the other word in that title is racism. And I just want to warn you, because some of you are sitting there, all right, he's going to tell us what racism is. I'm not going to define racism. I'm not going to do that for you. Uh, I thought about it, and one of the first things I thought of, well, I've I better figure out if I'm racist or not. So I Googled about racism. You can Google about anything. 
So I googled about racism and all sorts of things popped up. But one thing I saw in the images was this racism scale. And I thought that was interesting because I'm an engineer. I thought that had helped me. So I printed it out and I looked. It had about 40 different statements across there. And it went from completely, totally horrible racist to absolutely not. Okay. So I started on the left side. And I checked out the 100-degree mark. And the first thing it said was, I would kill a black person simply because they're black. I passed that one. You know, I thought, okay, I'm not completely, totally. And then I started moving down, and I was doing pretty well for just a little while. And I got to about the 85% mark. And it said, if you would say... I'm not racist. Now, I had to stop and think about that. This chart said, if I say I'm not racist, that proves I'm racist. And I figured out then that you can't Google everything. (laughs) Yeah, there's really some bad stuff out there. Now, some of it was kind of helpful. I learned a few things, and it was kind of interesting. But I decided after that, I'm not going to define for you what racism, whatever you think racism is. And I'll admit in this country, it's all over the charts right now. But whatever your definition is, I'll let you keep yours. Whatever it is, because what we're going to talk about today applies. Because we're going to talk about the Bible. First question, why does racism exist? And I kept going back to this over the weeks I've been thinking about this. We've got to understand this first. Why does racism exist? And here's my answer. Because where we live today, in the sense of the Bible, let's think about The first two chapters are about Eden. And everything's really good. The last two chapters are about heaven. And things are really good. The middle 1,185 chapters are where we live. And things aren't good. We live in the 1185. It is no longer Eden. And it's not yet heaven. We live in a messed up world, folks. That's why there's racism. The Bible tells us in chapter 3 that Eve and Adam lied, distrusted God, hid from God. Chapter 4, Cain kills Abel, and we're off and going. It goes from there to all kinds of lies, murder, racism, tribalism, religious bigotry, and all of it describes the nature of man without God. When you distrust God, when you hide from God, your nature takes over. And the nature of man is evil. We look at history. We don't have to go very far in the Bible. The Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. 
men enslaving others. Well, later in history, blacks were enslaved by whites. But blacks were enslaved by blacks. Arabs were enslaved by Arabs. The nature of man. In Rwanda, a few years ago, the genocide there, the black Hutu tribe killed 800,000 Tutsi tribesmen. Muslims, all one faith. Sunnis kill Shias, and Shias kill Sunnis. Uh, India, I read a book about India a while back, and Gandhi and all of that. India is so diverse. It's got eight major religions. It's got 15 major languages and all kinds of dialects. It's got all innumerable tribes and sects and divisions. Guess what? They don't get along. All pretty much the same color. But they're always fighting and killing and stealing land and doing this and doing that. It's the nature of man. Not very many years ago in Yugoslavia, the Yugoslavian Serbs were killing Yugoslavian Bosnians. All Yugoslavian. In Asia, Japanese attacked the Chinese, killed them. Now the Chinese are enslaving the Uyghurs. Nature of man. Well, you've been told probably that the Crusades, the great Christian Crusades, were about Christians killing Muslims. Or maybe you've heard the other side that, well, the Muslims were taking over Christian lands, so the Christians had to defend them. I read a great, huge history book not long ago about the Crusades. It wasn't about Christian and Muslim. It was about power and money and empire. And whoever was in the way of this king getting more of this, there was war. European Christians fought Muslims because they were in the trade routes. Muslims tried to take territory because they wanted the trade. They wanted this wealth and that wealth. Muslims attacked Muslims. European Christians attacked European Christians. It's the nature of man. In the 1640s, a young Protestant Englishman joined Cromwell's army. King Charles was Protestant. The Irish Catholics were against his rule, and so he sent an army to take care of them. This young man joined that army. He went and fought for Cromwell. He killed lots of Irishmen. About a half million Irishmen were killed. And after that, 300,000 or so, according to the best records we have, were packed up and put onto ships and sent to West Indies, Jamaica, Virginia, and sold. Clear them out of Ireland. They were sold into slavery. Indentured servitude, but for so many years, 10 years or so, it was slavery, folks. Population of... Ireland dropped about two-thirds in a decade. That young Protestant that I'm telling you about that went there did a good job. He killed one rich Irish Catholic person, and after the troops killed him, they drew and quartered him. As an example to the other Irishmen. 
As a reward for his good work, Cromwell gave him 787 acres with a castle on it. And that castle still stands. That young Protestant's name, by the way, was Thomas Tandy. Ten generations ago. And I don't know if my great-great-great-great-great-granddad hated Irish. I don't know if he hated Catholics. I know King Charles wanted power. I know Cromwell paid well. I know my ancestor profited well from it. I don't know exactly why he did what he did, but the Bible tells me why. These three verses, and I'm going to give you a second to write those down. We're not going to read them completely, but Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Romans 1, 29 to 31. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4. You go home and read those. And they describe the nature of mankind without God. When man hides from God, walks away from God, doesn't believe God, doesn't follow his plan, this is what happens. Now, what I did with this list is edited down to just the things that have to do with human relationships, human on human. Here's the list from those three verses. Why does racism exist? Here's the number one reason. It's in our nature. It's in the nature of man without God. Look at all these words. Enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, covetous, maliciousness, murder, strife, deceit, heartless, ruthless, abusive, unappeasable, slanderous, no self-control, brutal, treacherous, lovers of self. Racism not mentioned by name in there, but that's the reason. That list of things is why Cain killed Abel. That list of things is why Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. It's the way it is when man operates without God. So number one reason there's racism is our nature, the nature of mankind without God. Now, that's the main reason. It's not the only reason. I, I would say another reason, I'll call it 1A, is not just nature, but nurture. We all have different raisings. We're all brought up differently and taught different things. And some of what we are taught is right, and some of what we are taught is wrong, and some of it is good, and some of it is evil, and some of it promotes prejudice, and some of it does all sorts of things. But we all have different raisings, and we believe and we act according to that. One of the most in fact, the most tragic picture I've seen so far of all the protests and violence and everything going on. Just the other day, I saw a picture on a street corner of the protests, so-called. It was a group of people and mothers had in front of them their children, about two or three years old, and were helping them to hold the signs that I can't show you this morning that said, blank the police. 
Those, those little girls nurture is going to guarantee a miserable, hate-filled life. They weren't born knowing to blank the police. But that's what they're being taught. So nature is number one. Number one A is nurture. When I was in high school, a new family moved to town, and they had a son about a year younger than me, and we became acquainted because he started going to North High School with me. He was from not just the South. He was from the deep South. Deep Louisiana South. This is in 65, 66 now when the Civil Rights Act hadn't quite been passed. My friend had never gone to school with a black person. He had been raised there's no other way I can say it, as a racist. That was his nurturing. Okay. And if you've been raised that way, and you come to North High School in the 1960s, you got some culture shock coming. Okay, He had some culture shock. I had some culture shock as we got to know each other. Now, Those reasons, I think, answer the question, why does racism exist, nature and nurture? Second question, what's God's plan for racism? What's he plan to do about this? Well, what's he want us to do about this, I guess, is maybe a better way to say it. I said that the Bible doesn't mention race, and it really doesn't. I'll show you some things it does say that tell us about God's plan for man. Pay attention here. Genesis chapter 1, 27. We just get started. We're still in the good two chapters. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What's God's plan? He made mankind. He didn't make this race that race. He made mankind. He did divide them up male and female, and we can't even figure that out anymore, but he made mankind. Next verse, John chapter 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God made all of mankind, and God loved all of mankind so much that he sent his son to die for our evil ways. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. what did Jesus tell his followers before he went back to heaven? I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. All nations. God created mankind. God died for mankind. And he wants all mankind to be made disciples. All nations. That includes all tribes, all colors, all nationalities, all ethnicities, anything you want to call it. John 17, this one we're going to read. I'll read it to you if you don't have your Bible with you. I want you to fill in the blanks. I won't fill them in for you. You've got to fill them in as you listen here. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 
20, Jesus is praying to the Father. And I want you to see if you can hear what he prayed for and why he prayed for that. Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, the apostles, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. What did Jesus pray for? Unity. Unity. And why did he pray for unity? So that the world will believe. What's God's plan for racism? We're getting there. God, Jesus prayed for unity so that the world would believe. Now, one other thing we've got to get straight, who was he praying for? said it there in the very first verse. said, I'm not just praying for the apostles. I'm also praying for all those who will believe on me. He was praying for you and me. He was praying for everyone who would ever become a Christian. And his prayer was that they would be unified, they would be perfectly one, so that the world would believe in him. God's plan. What's the answer to what's God's plan for racism? His plan is the church. That's what that passage says. His plan is the church. Not politicians, not laws, not this or that. The church. Now think about it. In an evil world, filled with hate and distrust of each other, what would get somebody's attention? People where there isn't hate and distrust between each other. People where they are perfectly unified no matter what their differences. Let me show you one more verse and wrap this up. Galatians chapter 3, Paul is addressing all of us who have put on Christ. He said, if you've been baptized, you're in Christ, you're a Christian, once you're in there, there's neither Jew nor Greek, no slave or free, no male and female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And he was writing that mainly because he was writing to a group of people who were the main racial division in that day, Jews and Gentiles. He said, if you're in Christ, that doesn't matter anymore. You're all one. Jesus wanted perfect unity. Paul said that's the way it ought to be. This is the plan. I had one thought 
So I was thinking about this. I thought, I wonder why Jesus didn't just fix racism somehow. You know, why didn't Paul try to fix racism? I mean, he's the one writing this verse. And he, did, he, he knew there were inequities. There was racial injustice. There was all kinds of injustice. He didn't organize the church to pass laws, to vote, to run for office, to fix this. And my answer to myself was, well, Jesus and Paul were kind of subversive. They didn't attack it directly. They kind of went underground in the church and said, if the church is one, if the church doesn't hate and distrust each other, then people will notice that, and people without God will come to God. And that will fix racism, along with every other problem with an ism on the end of it. Now, why does being in the church fix this? Well, because we get a new nature and we can overcome our nurture. Let's talk about that just a little bit. Well, let me back up a second. I'm not sure that you, you got exactly what I said back there. I said the church's answer is a subversive answer to social injustice. Let me say, let me say it as clearly as I can say it. Because a lot of churches these days have decided that what they've got to do is get social justice. What they've got to do is organize and protest and vote and do all of this to get social justice, to get racial unity. Clear as I can say it, the mission of the church is not racial unity. And some of you didn't like that because you didn't hear all I've got to say yet. What I said was, the mission of the church is not racial unity. But, racial unity is essential to the mission of the church. That makes sense to anybody? The mission of the church is to bring the people without God to God. How did Jesus, who may have known something about it, think that that would work in the evil world that we've just described? He said, if my people are one, the world will stop and take a second look. The world will say they got something going on. In the church, first of all, we get a new nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let me read it to you very quickly. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16. Paul said, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation okay you google sermons about race and you can find a whole lot of them in the last two months about racial reconciliation Paul says we've got the ministry of reconciliation. But in case we get confused and think that's racial reconciliation, he says Christ reconciled us to himself, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That's the mission of the church. Racial reconciliation may be a part of, of making that unity work. It's not the mission of the church. In the church, we get a new nature. And when we get that new nature, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us, but we understand that, and then that helps us get to 1A, where we can also overcome our nurture. If we're going to be one, we have to overcome our nurture sometimes. Things we've always believed and been taught and they're wrong, and we figure that out. My southern friend that I told you about a moment ago, he came to North High School and began to go to class with black kids. There was a culture shock. He went out to the football field and practiced and played with black kids. It didn't take him very many weeks to figure that kids who were wrapped in black were a lot like the kid wrapped in white. He figured that out. He'd been told different all his life. He had been nurtured not to believe that, but he saw it. He figured it out. Now, once he started to figure out that, the culture shock moved from he and I to his parents. Now we had some culture shock. When black kids started calling his house to see when they could pick him up to go somewhere, mama had some culture shock. That's the way it is in life, the way we've been nurtured. My friend, by the way, went ahead and got a law degree after college and then later in life changed to career and became a minister of the gospel in the south third question and last one how are we doing on God's plan why does racism exist our nature and our nurture what's God's plan for the church a unified church so how are we doing on that plan and there's two sides to this answer I think one is Globally, in the big scheme of things, a history lesson, we're doing pretty good. Christianity has changed things. Without Christians, without the church, the world would be a much darker place. I'm not saying we've fixed everything. We can't fix everything. I'm not saying we've done as well as we can, but people who follow Christ have changed the world. Slavery, which once was 
just the way it is, was abolished a whole lot more by pulpits than by politicians. The people that ran the Underground Slave Railway that freed people from the South in this country were Christian people that believed this was the right thing to do and risked their life for it. I told you about Thomas Dandy in the 1600s who, who killed Catholics and brutalized them and sold them into slavery. That's just the way it was. Four generations later, another Tandy, Smythe, came to America from Ireland. He was a younger son, so he wasn't going to inherit the castle. So he left. He came to America and he came right before the Revolutionary War. Sounded like a good job to him, so he joined the Revolution. Fought for America against the English. And when he finished his service, he was, once again, paid in land. And he got a portion of land in Virginia and then in Kentucky. And he became a successful businessman. Now, this is 1700s now. I have a copy of his will. I have a copy of his estate. When he died, he didn't have a whole lot. But the first time I read it, I was a little surprised to see that the bulk of his estate, the most valuable things he owned, were a Negro man, George, a Negro woman, Clary, and a Negro boy, Davy. Now, You may find that admission shocking. I don't know. You can cancel me if you want to. But that's not my point about what my ancestors did. My point is that ten generations ago, what was acceptable and just the way it was changed six generations ago. What was acceptable and was just the way of life has changed. Today, ten generations after killing Catholics and six generations after owning people, I have no inclination to do either of those. Something's changed. And I would say it was because people in not just the world, but within the Tandy family, who changed from being people without God to the people with God, and began to get, well, they got a new nature, and they learned to overcome their nurture, and things have changed. Somehow we've made progress. I would contend the progress in the world has mainly come from the subversive work of the church, Christianity. Now, I said globally, we're doing pretty good. The other part of the question is, how are we doing locally? How are we doing right here? How are we doing in Wichita? How are we doing at 4545 North Meridian? And my first answer would probably be pretty well until I go back and look at what God's plan was. If you think about the first century, if you think about what people without God saw when they saw the church, 
And I realize I'm compressing things here in the New Testament. But if somebody drove the chariot past the church, as church was letting out, what would they see? They would see a Pharisee walking out with a Samaritan woman. They would see a Greek doctor walking out with an African eunuch. They would see a tax collector who worked for the Romans walking out with an Israeli terrorist who killed Romans. They would see Philemon, the master, walking in with his arm around Onesimus, his slave. And when I think about all of that, I would say, we're not doing as well as we should. We're not doing as well as we could. To the degree that the world without God sees the church looking just as divided as they are, then we're not doing good. And it doesn't matter what the division is. I know of small towns where there are two or three churches of Christ because they can't agree what Bible to read out of or what color the carpet to be or something. John 17 says the world is not going to care. They're not going to believe when they see that. So it may be doctrinal things that are opinions or whatever that divide us. But if the world who is divided and hateful looks at our church and says, well, there's a rich church and there's a poor church. There's a black church and there's a white church. There's a professional church and there's a blue-collar church. There's a Republican church and there's a Democrat church. There's a pro this and an anti that. To the degree that they see any of that, for any reason, whatever ism, we're not doing as good as we could. We're not doing what we should. Next week, part two, we're going to talk about, okay, how do we do better? We'll raise some questions about that. If you're here this morning and are not a new creation, you can become one today. Paul explained it very clearly. Be baptized into Christ. We'd like to help you with that. If you've been thinking about this, like I think most of us have over the last few months, and the Spirit has revealed to you that your nature or your nurture is not in line with God's will on this matter, then you need to repent. You need to begin to work on that to overcome it. We'd be happy to help you with that too. The elders are going to be at the back of the room. If you have any public response you need to make or to pray with them, we invite you to go back there while we stand and sing this song. Let's stand.